In northern Mexico, at the meeting point of the provinces of Chihuahua, Coahuila, and Durango, is a region known as the Mapimi Desert. In the Cretaceous Age, it was the Sea of Tetlis. The scenery is lonely and unreal, an apparently lifeless desert supporting only cacti and hardy weeds. Unique prehistoric life forms survive in these harsh conditions. A species of triangle-shaped marine shells live under the sand, and there is a burrowing tailless tortoise, the balsam or yellow margin, a direct descendant of the great marine turtles that once swam the Cretaceous seas. In this region, between 104 and 107 degrees longitude, and astride the 27th parallel, is found La Zona del Silencio, a region where radio waves can neither be received nor sent. Such electromagnetic anomalies are thought to be linked to the presence of a large nickel-iron meteorite buried beneath the desert since prehistoric times. It is in this zone of silence that we propose to witness the quincentenary. Surrealistic, I said, because I don't know, you can go to New York and you can see crazy things in New York, or you can go to Europe when it's springtime, you can see crazy people walking in the street. Uh, but here in Mexico, you can see that reality <laughs> is so strange because it's not a straight reality. You know, you can see a mixture of images. You can see, I have to say, so like last night when we are come, uh, we, are, we were taken to your hotel. You didn't see, but there was a lady, you know, half dressed and naked below. Or you can see a group of people fighting. Or you can see uh, somebody praying. Or you can see begging. And you can see the uh, the last model of the cars. You can see a very well dressed person, you know. And next to it, um, uh, a beggar. Uh, you can see criminality. You can see good things. So, so many, so many measures. ¿Cómo podría decirlo? Porque es surrealista por las múltiples de las imágenes. Lo voy a decir mejor en español. She says it's surrealistic because of the multiplicity of images. She says it in Spanish. The images are multiple. In our culture, she says, we're used to seeing only one aspect of reality. In Mexico, that's not so. Images, such as dream images, appear in the real world. And the real world sometimes appears in dreams. In other words... Sometimes you walk in the city and you don't know if you are dreaming. And when you are dreaming, you don't know if you are in reality. Fifteen nineteen, Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztecs. Dumbfounded by the beauty of it, the conquistadors ride down the causeway. Tenochtitlan seems to have been torn from the pages of Amadis. Things never heard of, never seen, nor even dreamed. The sun rises behind the volcanoes, enters the lakes, and breaks the floating mist into shreds. The city streets, canals, high tower temples, glitters before them. A multitude comes out to greet the invaders, silent and unhurried, while innumerable canoes open furrows in the cobalt waters. Moctezuma arrives on a litter, sit on a soft jaguar skin, beneath a canopy of gold pearls and green feathers. The lords of the kingdom go ahead sweeping the ground he will tread. He welcomes the god Quetzalcoatl. Thou hast come to occupy thy throne, he says. Thou hast come amid clouds, amid mists. I'm not seeing thee in dreams. I'm not dreaming. And to thy land 
hast thou come. Those who accompany Quetzalcoatl receive garlands of magnolias, necklaces of flowers around their necks, on their arms, on their breasts, the flower of the shield and the flower of the heart, the flowers of fine perfume and of golden hue. Quetzalcoatl is a native of Extremadura who landed on American shores with his whole wardrobe on his back and a few coins in his purse. He was 19 when he set foot on the wharf at Santo Domingo and asked, where is the gold? He is now 34 and a captain of great daring. He wears armor of black iron and leads an army of horsemen, lancers, crossmen, riflemen and fierce dogs. He has promised his soldiers I will make you in a very short time the richest man of all who ever came to the Indies. Emperor Moctezuma, who opens the gates of Tenochtitlan, will soon be finished. In a short while he will be called Woman of the Spaniards, and his own people will stone him to death. Young Cuauhtémoc will take his place. He will fight. Nigel, we're running uh, the tape, so okay, when you want to, problem. you can start talking a little bit about what the zone of silence is. I hesitate to speak, to break one silence and create another. This world is not silent, and yet the noise is indecipherable. You are deaf to the intricate sonic weave of the street, the mysteries of the body, the nuances of skin colour, bone structure, accent. The Uruguayan writer, Eduardo Galeano, wrote the stories that set our story in motion. I read him only in English, in translation, grasping at the echoes of his poetry. He writes of a Spanish bell silenced and exiled to Mexico for some strange bell-like misdemeanor. And from that silenced bell, imprisoned in its remote tower, Galeano creates a marvellous meaning without a sound. Now, I'm looking for a way to make this bell speak, to fill the mouth with sound, looking for a point of entry into a world of stories, not of my own devising, of setting the tongue free in a zone of silence. This proposal is premised upon a series of temporal, spatial and cultural translocations or dislocations, not the least of these being that our acknowledgement of Columbus Day as October the 12th itself highlights a dislocation in the social construction of history. The October 12th landfall accords with the Julian calendar used in Columbus's day. By our present Gregorian calendar, the first European landfall in the Americas takes place on October 23, 1492. This inconvenient temporal slippage 
cannot be acknowledged to any significant extent within the noise of the quincentenary. Our serial works attempt to create a lacuna within the relentless flow of historical narratives generated around this anniversary. These interventions acknowledge the mythic nature of this story whilst addressing the political and social context of its telling. The works we propose constitute a series of resonant geographic and historical metaphors. As the mass media approaches a saturation of competing Colombian narratives, entering a zone of silence offers the only possibility for clary audience in the cacophony. Our non-functional desert broadcast addresses the historical facts with more lucidity than most of the international recreations of the old world, new world encounter planned for 1992 by directly engaging with the paradox of the inaudibility of that historical moment. In ships, the bell marks off the quarter hours of the watches. In mines and cane fields, it summons Indian serfs and black slaves to work. In churches, it marks the hours and announces masses, deaths and fiestas. But in the tower over the palace of the Viceroy of Mexico, there is a silent bell. It is said that inquisitors took it from the bell tower of an old Spanish village, removed the clapper and expatriated it to the Indies. No one knows how many years back. Ever since the Maestro Rodrigo constructed it in 1530, this bell had always been clean and obedient. They say it had 300 tones according to the bell ringer's whim and the whole village was proud of it until one night its long and violent pealing made everybody jump out of bed the bell was sounding the alarm unleashed by fear or joy or who knows what and for the first time no one understood it a crowd gathered in the atrium as the bell pealed madly on and the mayor and the priest went up to the tower and frozen with fear confirmed that no one was there. No human hand moved it. The authorities took the case to the Inquisition. The Holy Office Tribunal declared the pealing of the bell to be totally null and void and he was silenced forever and exiled to Mexico. Juana Inés de Asbaje walks out of the palace of a protector, the Viceroy Manceda, and crosses the great plaza, followed by two Indians who carry her trunks. Reaching the corner, she stops and looks back at the tower, as if called by the voiceless bell. She knows its history. She knows that it was punished for singing all on its own.
Se hablaba mucho del plan sexual, un plan en el cual pensado, por lo menos aprobado, por Lázaro Cárdenas, se imponía Politics. Politics. la educación Politics, 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 politics. We get lost on the end of September. Lost on Cardenas, lost on Cinco de Mayo, confused on insurgentes, going the wrong way on La Reforma. The streets inscribe the history of the city, an intricate text of heroes, victories, defeats and revolutions. History has been made to speak the language of the state, peeling back the layers, peeling back the flesh, other names, former heroes, forgotten victories. Dinner with a psychoanalyst, returned from 30 years of voluntary exile, studying in Zurich, work in Europe, travel to Argentina. Do you speak French? She asks. Mm. Italian? No. Well, she says, I'll speak in English, which is not so good. I do an entire interview with the senior engineer of the metro system, in which I ask my questions in English, and he answers in Spanish. I nod energetically each time I recognize a word. We talk about the metro's administrative system as a cultural construct, as an elaborate chain of facts and figures, as a metaphor. When the interview's over, he asks me where I learnt my Spanish in night school. I say, ah, he says, I learnt English just by listening.
Hace 23 años se puso en servicio la primera línea del metro, la línea 1 que va de IBE en aquel entonces de Zaragoza a Chapultepec, cruzando casi por el centro de la ciudad. La Ciudad de México es una construcción muy típica al origen español, con un centro político, social, económico y administrativo rodeada por todas sus colonias. La línea 1, después la línea 2 y posteriormente la línea 3 pasan muy cercanas al centro de la ciudad. En septiembre de 1910, 69 se puso en servicio con 11.3 kilómetros y transportaba 250 mil pasajeros por día. En 1970 se concluyeron con la línea 2 y la línea 3 y crecieron hasta 600 mil, 700 mil pasajeros diarios. Hubo posteriormente una, un periodo de no construcción del metro. El primer It goes from, it went at that time, from Zaragoza to Chapultepec, crossing the heart of the city, practically. Mexico City is constructed very much to the typical Spanish design in that it has a central district where the political, social, economic, and administrative functions are concentrated with the suburbs all around. Line one, then lines two and three go very close to this city heart. The metro went into operation in September 1969. The line was 11.3 kilometers long, and it transported 250,000 passengers per day. In 1970, lines two and three were finished, and the number of passengers grew to 600,000, 700,000. At present, after a number of stages of expansion, we have eight lines for pneumatic wheeled trains and one line for steel wheeled trains. The eight pneumatic lines are 141 kilometers long, and the steel line is 17 kilometers long. That's a total of 158 kilometers. 125 stations in the pneumatic network. 56 trenes de 9 carros todos ellos neumáticos y 20 trenes de 6 carros nada más férreos. En total tenemos 276 trenes en servicio. The metaphor of these actions is extended to their multiple locations. The sounding of the ship's bell on a dry bed of a prehistoric ocean invokes a site where history has ceased to sound. The dysfunctional radio transmission speaks to the place of radio as the monitor and medium of history-making. The location of the radio receiver and speaker arrays within a Mexico City metro station suggests a series of juxtapositions between cultural and historical processes. In the densely populated urban areas of Mexico City, the metro exists as a unique public space for exhibition purposes, sites which graze pre-Columbian history by virtue of their co-location with the archaeological remains of Aztec culture. In the anticipated non-transmission of the desert event, the speakers will relay the sounds of white noise, further evoking the lost ocean. sus orígenes se fue considerado como una especie de traslado de, de información no siempre científica pero siempre de Line 1, which was the first to go into operation, shows different aspects of our culture, of our architecture. Each and every one of them has something to offer in visual terms. They're not painted, they haven't got murals, but every one of them in some part of the station tries to show something of our history. For example, la arqueología está representada porque tenemos una estatua, una perdón, una pirámide, una pirámide de Ejecat, que es el dios del viento en Pinosares precisamente. Tenemos un mamut, los restos de un mamut que encontramos en la estación Talismán de línea 4 en la zona norte de la ciudad. Un mamut es un ¿Cómo se dice mamut en inglés? Mamut es un elefante. Sí, 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 mira, prehistórico, prehistórico elefante. Mamas. Mamas. Sí, sí. 
We've got other bits of archaeology on show in the stations. However, this was part of the construction and has always been part of the plan. Important architectural features have been incorporated. Sculptures of famous Mexicans or famous non-Mexicans, where normally greater emphasis is placed on Mexicans. Nonetheless, the Metro, talking about its administration now, not its construction, has concerned itself with disseminating culture amongst its users. There is a cultural program. We've got murals. I feel that murals and muralists have featured enormously in Mexico. I'd say the muralists have always been Mexico's best-known artists. At this very moment, we've got at least five painting and photography exhibitions on show. We move them around, we put them in all the stations in the metro. The idea is to bring culture to the users a bit, not because we want to be the Mexican public education system, but because the metro is a bit more than just a means of transport. We make use of the fact that we've got them shut in. It's hard to make someone to go to something like a museum. It's hard to force them. It's easier for them to go through the metro and see what we want to show them. When the first lines were being built, since they moved through the heart of the city, lots of pre-Hispanic things were found, which formed part of our own indigenous culture. At present, we have in line 8, which goes across Avianis and Fowl from south to north. This is a very old part of Mexico City. And there have been lots of farms, walls, bits of old constructions. And even though they're not important finds in terms of cost of fabrication, these are relatively modern, four or five hundred years old, they're always treated with respect. And the work proceeds in conjunction with each worksite has a team of anthropologists there at the worksite to make sure finds are treated with respect. And the work stops when a find is made so that its importance can be analyzed and so it can be properly processed, in other words, forwarded to the museum. At present, at the Abbey Anderson Trail, they found the walls, the main compound of what used to be the native hospital, in other words, the Indian hospital in colonial time, when Mexico was a colony of Spain. And they found skeletons, skulls, about 80 skeletons. They've dug them all out, getting them out, and so far as it's been possible to do so, they've been taking them away to analyze them. There have been others. For example, a burial site was found at Miguel Angel de Cabeda Station on Line 3 in the south of the city. I remember it well because I went to look at it myself. It's set up there, it's, um, they found it, they fixed it up, they organized it for display, they put a cover on it, and people can look at it on their way past. In other words, there are a lot of things left just as they are. Others are dug out and sent to the appropriate museum. But the principle is to have respect for our ancestors, our history. It's part of our history that we must have respect for what we used to be. exactly what I heard. I've only just moved house. I have lost my diary. These recordings are all that remain, a collection of missed moments, distortions, misunderstandings. 
I set out one day to make recordings on the metro. I wanted to record the hawkers and the beggars, the, the blind musicians who get on and work their way through the crowd, exit the carriage at the next stop and enter the following carriage. The blind lead the blind on these occasions. Guitar players, harmonium players, ensembles. A boy follows, rattling coins in a cup, rhythm section and request. The hawkers sell pins and needles, peppermints, maps to the metro system. Each time that I have the recorder on discreetly, musicians fail to materialise. Hawkers avoid me. When I'm running low on batteries, or running out of tape, or the machine's turned off, it's in those moments that the musician enters the carriage. Elsewhere, at lunch times, you sometimes hear a barrel organ playing outside a restaurant. There's no monkey. An older man in a neat khaki uniform passes between the tables, his cap extended. His young offsider stands outside, cranking the organ. When they have finished, they move on. The young man, bent double, under the weight of the organ on his back. And every night, in the colonial Juarez, where we stayed, the sellers of hot sweet potato trundle their carts from place to place along the street. Now these carts are made from old gasoline drums with a firebox to heat the steamer that cooks the slices of potato and banana. The steam pressure builds up and when it's released there's a strange haunting whistle, a long falling note somewhere between a ship's whistle and a pipe organ. Three weeks, we catch these sounds only twice. The barrel organ, a brief moment in passing on a busy street. And a single note from a potato cart, recorded from the balcony of the hotel on our last night in the city. very proud, uh, well, the Indians, there was always has been an imperial. Mexicans has, uh, since the Aztecs, it was imperial. The Aztecs, it was uh, not the original people from here. They dominate so many tribes, you know? So from the Aztecs, it still be this uh, domination. So. And this other thing, we lost, you know, this, uh, uh, um, mother culture, you know, and the mother culture, you know, the mother culture is always looking for the hero. I'm talking about Jungian way of thinking. The mother always needs the hero, you know. So, and as we don't have a father, means as, as a culture, the father is absent, uh, physically or psychically, we don't have father. That is why we are we're looking in our parties, the political party, the father, you know, the paternalism. Now, if you see that it's a mother culture and we have a paternal culture with the government, so we are looking for the hero. So this big monument you see, we need the Mexicans to make a monument to look, to look for the heroes. Maybe today Cardenas is the big hero. Maybe tomorrow, Porfirio Diaz will be the hero. And the streets and everything is like a coin with our culture of the hero, you know? Hero type. But that's come, if I could explain from the psychological point of view, it's come from the mother, 
La madre necesita siempre tener un héroe, el hijo. ¿sí? Si hay una ausencia de padre, entonces los, eh, va a haber muchos héroes. She says the mother always needs to have a hero, the son. If the father is absent, then there will be lots of heroes, lots of monuments. Blood flows like water. The drinking water is acid with blood. To it, only earth remains. They fight house by house, over the ruins and over the dead, day and night. Almost three months of battle without let up. Only dust and the stink of corpses to breathe. But still drums beat in the last towers. Bells tingle on the ankles of the last warriors. The strength given battle cries and chants continue. The last women take up battle axes from the fallen and until they collapse, keep hammering on shields. Emperor Quautemoc summons the best of his captains. He puts on the long feather owl headpiece and takes up the sword of fire. With this sword in his fist, the god of war had emerged from his mother's belly back in the most remote of times. With this serpent of sunbeams, Wetzilopochtli had decapitated his sister, the moon, and had cut to pieces his 400 brothers the stars, because they didn't want to let him be born. Cuauhtémoc orders, let our enemies look on it and be struck with terror. The sword of fire opens up an avenue. The chosen captain advances, alone, through the smoke and debris. They fell him with a single shot from an arcabus. She says she's a Jungian psychologist, a follower of C.G. Jung. She believes in archetypes, and she believes that a lot of the things that influence us are absorbed through the unconscious. Maybe we are not aware of consciousness about our impact, as you say, the, uh, the Spaniards or the French or these, but we have in our blood, we have in our, in our soul. Now, this new impact we are having with the American uh, culture is true. It's, uh, it's true. We are getting into our soul, too. But as I said to you last night, I feel like uh, America or the States, shall we say, to, the, the States is a country who for Mexicans is the shadow, a collective shadow. As I said, for certain Mexicans is a, a, a light shadow, means una sombra luminosa, positiva, is a positive shadow. That means they feel identified with it. They are not against, they assimilate, they feel the panacea for working or getting money or some medical, some people, rich people, they go there in the clinics or they buy, they go to buy clothes, yes. For other Mexicans, you know, the state is the dark shadow. Means means something is stolen us, is um, imposing us, is uh, taking us uh, our roots. Um, they feel sometimes against, so they fight against Americans. You know? So you can have in our country two kind, two kind of people who are pro-state and against states. You know, but both of them 
you still have an impact in the soul, in the psyche. We cannot uh, say I am against the states and so it doesn't impact my, my psyche. So it's still working in that. So, and we are assimilating, you know, that culture. She says there are two things here. You've got to remember that the Mexican identity is a bit confused. In other words, she says, their identity is in fact being lost. With all the assimilation of cultures, they in fact don't know where they are as Mexicans. And, she says, use is even being made in political terms to re-emphasize ancient Mexican values, such as solidarity, self-respect, the word. Suddenly, all at once, the cries and the drums cease. Gods and men have been defeated. With the gods' death, time has died. With the men's death, the city has died. This warrior city, she of the white willows and white rushes, has died fighting as she lived. No more will conquered princes of all the regions coming boats through the mist to pay her tribute. A stunning silence rhymes and the rain begins to fall. Thunder and lightning fill the sky and it rains all through the night. The gold is piled into huge baskets, gold of shields and insignia of war, gold of the mask of gods lip and ear pendants, ornaments, lockets. The gold is weighed and the prisoners prized. The soldiers gather to play dice and cards. Fire burns the soles of Emperor Quatemoc's feet, anointed with oil while the world is silent and it rains. We were there in the fall. It rained every day. Because of this rain, the pollution didn't seem so bad. The city is vast. It makes no sense. We go where we have to. We follow instructions. Stories rush past. I'm staying with a friend. She has lived in Mexico for two years, before that in Nicaragua for four years. We had long conversations about being foreign, about searching for the entry points into another culture. She was suspicious of travellers, of tourists with pretensions. Keep a low profile, she said. Only drink boiled water and don't eat meat from street stalls. Life here is ruled by formal gestures, she said. Politeness covers everything. It was hard living here for her. Expensive, dirty, crowded. But she stayed because of the work she was doing at the university. She loved the richness of ideas. A couple of her teachers were terrific. Mexico City is a major intellectual centre. Cultural capital is power here, she says. Like, I don't know if you knew this, but like, most of the schools here where we go are private because the, the the public school is really bad, you know? And um, so what they do is they try to, between the teachers, they try to to say, no, look, everything's gonna be all right. 
with this free trade we're gonna get better everything's under control we know what we're doing but the things we see is more like um, information we get for our, from our houses and what we really see like corruption and stuff it's really clear you can see it everywhere it's what you see in well, incluso la escuela es lo que más te Mm -hmm. At school is what most, um, they what, try to deceive you. Yeah, that's what they try and blindfold you, you know. <coughs> From the branch of an old saiba tree, hung by the ankles, swings the body of the last king of the Aztecs. Cortés has cut off his head. He had arrived in the world in a cradle surrounded by shields and spears, and these were the first sounds he heard. Your real home is elsewhere. You are promised to another land. Your proper place is the battlefield. Your task is to keep the blood of your enemy to the sun, to drink, and the body of your enemy to the earth to eat. Twenty-nine years ago, the soothsayers poured water over his head and pronounced the ritual words. Where are you hiding, misfortune? In which limb do you conceal yourself? Away from this child. They call him Cuauhtémoc, eagle that falls. His father had extended the empire from sea to sea. When the prince took over the throne, the invaders had already come and conquered. Cuauhtémoc rose up and resisted. Four years after the defeat of Tenochtitlan, the songs that called for the warriors' return still resound from the depth of the forest. Who now rocks his mutilated body? The wind or the saiba tree? Isn't it the saiba from his enormous crown? Does he not accept this broken branch as one more arm of the thousands that spring from his majestic trunk? Will red flowers sprout from it? Life goes on. Life and death go on. to this coffee, you're not putting attention to anything. Not 
my attitude is, and I've seen it happen, like in Reynosa, among, I mean, first, the women, who are they recruiting? They're recruiting women from Chiapas, from Oaxaca, from the countryside, you know, who are, well, starving. Okay, they're migrating to the north, they're being recruited into the factories. And once they're in the factories, then there is possibility. And I mean, the women's movement is doing some really great work up there in other organisations with the women who are over 30 and okay it's you know do you agree with development or not <laughs> and I do I'm, yeah. you know I, basically that's my my position it's, any, any yeah. development is better than no development well because because I don't see any future to sort of subsistence agriculture yeah. and just one thing for example in the Japanese factories I mean you've got to compare it see Mexican nationalists will say no it's better for them to be exploited by Mexican capital. On the, that's bullshit. It's worse, you know, in the sort of um, backyard industries. The Mexican capitalists exploit their own workforce much worse than the Japanese, for example. Okay, the intensity of work is much greater, but the Japanese women, the ones who work in the, not the Japanese women, the women who work in the Japanese factories, they, in the morning, they bath them. They feed them, they give them breakfast, make them take off all their makeup, they put on uniforms, you know, before they go into work. It's almost like a theatrical performance to go to work because they've got to be extremely clean. Yeah, Japanese women in Japan. No, sorry, I made a mistake. Yeah, Mexican work in the Japanese electronics factories in Mexico. Right? And see, North American research workers come down and scream and say, this is dreadful, you know, women losing their identity. But, you know, those women don't have running water in their houses. The fact, I mean, the Japanese aren't stupid. They bath them in the morning before they arrive. They're showered and they're breakfasted and it sounds dreadful. But, you know, the women who work there, you talk to them, they prefer to work in those Japanese electronics factories than, than in domestic industry for a Mexican worker, you know. And they've got more benefits, you know. Sort of, I mean, uh, that's not to say not to condemn the conditions that exist and not to you know, denounce it to the four winds. But as I said, everything's relative. He says that we are just going to be one more star in their flag. And that... Um, they're gonna try to dominate us. They're just gonna try to. And he said that they're already doing it. And the thing is that they first started doing it only culturally. They're trying to like put new cultural things in, but now they're also doing it. Gonna do it economically. They're gonna. So that's gonna be. He says even our eyes are going to turn blue. <laughs> <laughs>
after the first week in the city, we drive north in a hired Volkswagen Beetle, three of us and the bell. It rains for the first two days of our journey. We pass through huge industrial towns, San Luis Potosi, Torreon, Zacatecas, kilometres of factories and foundries alongside ramshackle adobe houses and blocks of concrete apartments with asbestos water tanks. I can tell you about the grim-faced men walking or riding bicycles to and from the factories in the rain, pushing through the mud to the free trade zone. Some of the men had capes of clear plastic sheeting tied around their hats. Most just pushed on, bent into the rain. I can tell you about them, but they don't make a sound. Traversed a forest of signs, bewitched. The mountains revealed hallucinated figures of men tortured by gods, amongst whom Good, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I think everything's working. Do you want to give me uh, an identification of who you are, sir? Yeah, uh, this is Marcos Zapata talking to you, to all the Australian community. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Okay. Um, well, the thing that I wanted to talk about, well, first of all, uh, maybe, um, there's lots of things that we've been talking about, some of the things we've already got down, but one of the things I was really... Some thing, questions we ask people. Oh, oh no, okay. The destination of our journey is the zone of silence in the Mapimi Desert of northern Mexico, where the ship's bell will sound out the rhythms of the ship's watch over the 24 hours of October the 12th, Columbus Day. The sonic form of the bell locates itself in this desert context as a dual metaphor of the sacred and the profane, echoing the duplicity of Columbus's responses to the new world, those of ascetic appreciation mixed with material exploitation. Father and your mother. 
that if if they uh, if they don't have love when they were young people and, and if uh, they love each other the black the black doll was closet yes or no but but the door is a duty duty culpable when you that you for inside are crying you are crying for inside you love me and I love you the black door is Yeah. 